God, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts now to see more of your splendor. God, I pray that you would cause our convictions about your word and your uh, unchanging nature, your unchanging promises, cause our convictions to go deeper now. God, I pray that all of the words that I say in all of the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you and pleasing to you as we sit under your word now. God, please help us in those ways. Thank you for giving us this word through which you draw near to us. We give you these thanks and we bring you these requests in the name of Jesus, our mediator, your son, our savior. Amen. And please open your Bibles to Acts 12. Acts 12. The last several chapters of Acts showed how an intense wave of persecution against the early church led to really an overflowing flood of salvation for many. A great persecution broke out in Jerusalem in Acts 8.1, and that caused the Christians in the city to scatter the Word of God went with them to save, and we have seen how God did save in Judea, in the cities of Samaria, on the road to Ethiopia, in Caesarea, in Phoenicia, in Cyprus, in Antioch. Many were added to the Lord, and the Lord even converted the chief persecutor of Christians, and that brought about a period of peace for the church after Saul was saved. Acts 9, 31 said, So the church had peace. But it didn't last. In Acts 12, verse 1, we read, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So the church withstood a first wave of persecution, only to see another wave coming. Now, sometimes it's the trials that follow the trials that are the hardest. Uh, we hear people reflect on past suffering by saying things like, I don't know how I made it through, and I don't know how I could do that again. Right? Sometimes it's not the diagnosis, you have cancer, that's the hardest, but the cancer is back, even more devastating. The church enjoyed peace after persecution, but now the persecution was back. Well, how can we respond well to trials that come again to more opposition, to more suffering? And part of the answer, surely, is to expect that it's coming. As long as we live in this sin-cursed world that opposes Christ, Jesus did not tell his followers, in this world you might have trouble. 1 Peter 4.12 says directly, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange. Likewise, Scripture does not teach the gospel will spread unopposed. The word will be met with opposition. And, and if it doesn't, for a time, we should expect that another wave of opposition is, is forming and coming. 
unless Jesus comes first. Periods of peace in the church, however long they are, should be periods of recovery and periods of preparation to stand firm again. Another wave came in Acts 12. This time, though, the persecution was worse in the sense that the church suffered an especially big loss, which it had not experienced previously. That's the first main point of the chapter, the death of an apostle. The death of an apostle. Look at verse 1 again, going on into verse 2 this time. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This would have been such a big blow for the early church. James was one of Christ's special twelve apostles, and he was one of only three apostles who made up Christ's most inner circle during his earthly ministry. Do you remember that? Peter, James, and John. This James had seen Christ do things and heard Christ say things that no one else had seen except for Peter and John. And when the 12 apostles were listed out in Acts 1, 13, it's no accident that the first names listed are Peter and John and James. Chapter 12, verse 2, is the death of a leading apostle. This, this is a colossal loss. And he's not going to be replaced by another man like Matthias replaced Judas Iscariot in Acts chapter 1 to, to bring the number of the apostles back up to 12. That's not happening this time. This is the beginning of the end of the apostolic age. Maybe you remember Jesus told James and John, you will drink the cup I drink. You will be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized, meaning, James, John, you are going to suffer like me. Mark 10, 39. And King Herod fulfilled that prediction of Christ, though that was not his intention. Now this Herod is Herod Agrippa. He bears an ugly family resemblance to his ancestors. He killed James by the sword, just as his uncle... Herod Antipas beheaded John the Baptist in Matthew 14, and his grandfather, Herod the Great, slaughtered the male children in Bethlehem in Matthew 2. Well, a previous persecution against the church did not touch the apostles like this one instigated by Herod did. Acts 8.1 specifically said that a great persecution arose against the church so that they were all scattered except the apostles. Remember even before that in Acts, when the Jewish religious leaders arrested the apostles and they wanted to punish them, they couldn't. Why? Because they were afraid of the people. The people held the apostles in high esteem at that time. But now, for some reason that's not explained to us, the situation is just the opposite. Herod kills the apostle. James, and it pleases the people. You see that in verse 3. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was during the days of the unleavened bread. So the murder of James pleased the people in Jerusalem so much 
that Herod seized another leading apostle, Peter, and planned to send him to the same fate. So it seemed Peter was destined to die by the sword as well. And we've seen in Acts, no one has been used by Christ, no human, in establishing the early church more than Peter up to this point. The reason Peter is put in prison for a time and not sent to the sword right away is because of what this verse said. These were the days of unleavened bread when this happened. And those were the seven Jewish holy days that followed after the Passover supper. And they were considered part of the Passover celebration. And Herod knew that the Jews would consider an execution in the middle of these holy days as defiling even if it was an execution they wanted. And so they would want it to occur on the common days that would follow this period, and Herod made that his plan then. Verse 4 says that. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him, Peter, over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover then to bring him out to the people. That's when he wanted to parade Peter out in front of the citizens of Jerusalem for a show trial and then kill him. Now learn this from Herod, that opposition to the church in opposition to the word of God does not always happen because of someone's direct animus against the faith. Herod persecuted the church, not, we read, because of any personal problem he had with Christians or their gospel, but simply because he wanted to be a people pleaser and solidify his power thereby. Now, there's a lot of opposition to the Word of God today that happens for the same reasons. The scriptures teach that some people oppose the word, even in the sense of refusing to accept it for themselves, simply because they are wanting the esteem of other people. John 12, 42 and 43 says that in Jesus' lifetime, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Earlier than that, in John 5, 44, Jesus asked some of the Jewish leaders, How can you believe? Implication, you cannot believe when you receive glory from one another. And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. self serving, people-pleasing, will cause many to resist the gospel until their dying day, and it will motivate some even to persecute those who believe it. Not all persecution arises from the same soil. So it appears Peter's done for. He's placed under maximum security. There are four squads... And each have four soldiers in them. They are all assigned to guard Peter. They would take turns keeping watch. And so Peter's friends in the church, it seemed, were powerless. 
to help him, that is, in every way except one, which verse 5 describes. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. This verse sets up a showdown. The mighty king versus the praying church. And contrary to all appearances, we know who has the upper hand. Because they're seeking the hand of God. And you should think that way about today, too, in your prayers. Well, the next part of Acts 12 will show us it's right to think that way about our prayers. Because the death of an apostle is followed by the deliverance of an apostle. That's next. The deliverance of an apostle. In verse 6, now, we fast forward to the last night that Peter had in prison before he would be killed. This is execution eve. Verse 6, now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries, guards, were before the door guarding the prison. Look at what Peter is doing on what seems to be his final night on earth, knowing that someone plans to murder him the next morning and there's no way to run away. Peter is sleeping peacefully. If you were scheduled to be killed tomorrow morning, would you be able to fall asleep tonight? Before Peter was rescued from prison, this man had been rescued from the fear of death. Through his faith in Jesus, who died and was raised. Hebrews 2 says, Jesus came to rescue us from that. Even on death's doorstep, Peter is not filled with the anxiousness that keeps one from sleeping. He believed in the resurrection and in eternal life. He He cast his cares upon God, whom he knew cared for him. Sleep can be a very powerful act of faith. David said in Psalm 3, 5 and 6, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. I'll sleep. We can also think of Psalm 121. It says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He is my keeper, and he never sleeps or slumbers. And that's why we can. If we are not lifting our eyes, as it were, to ourselves as our own helper, or keeper. And the next verse shows God was not sleeping while Peter was. And it also shows us how remarkably soundly Peter was sleeping. Verse 7, behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He, the angel, struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Now notice that the sudden appearance of the angel and the shining light in the cell was not enough to wake Peter. The angel had to strike him on the side 
to wake him. And then he had to speak to him to rouse him. Get up quickly. And in that moment, these chains that bound him to a guard on either side, they dropped to the floor, fell off his hands. And the next verse shows us, even then, Peter is not fully with it. The angel had to give him step-by-step instructions about how to get dressed and leave. It's like when your kid wakes up in the middle of the night or, or really early, you have to go somewhere and you have to tell them, all right, put your arm through the hole in the shirt. Now put your other arm through the other hole. Now put on your shoes. Now let's go. This is what the angel does. Look at verse 8. The angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And verse 9 tells us Peter still did not feel all that awake after he started. In fact, he supposed that he was still sleeping at this point. He was just having a dream from God. Look at verse 9. He went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. Verse 10, the miracles keep coming. Somehow the guards are blinded from all that's happening, and a big metal door opens automatically. Verse 10, when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. Then they went out, went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. I don't know how long at that point Peter stood there in a daze by himself in the street at night, but eventually he snaps out of it and he realizes this is real life. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Of course, Peter knew this, this is from the Lord. This has to be the Lord. I was rescued from an impossible situation, maximum security. This had to be the Lord. I, I had nothing to do with this. I was half asleep the whole time. This was not the result of any man's scheming or power. I'm sure the Lord rescued me. Now, verse 12, it tells us what Peter did now that he's thinking clearly again. It says, when Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and they were praying. Peter found the church doing just what they were doing up in verse 5. Earnest prayer was made for Peter. And the answer to their prayers was about to knock on the door. Verse 13, Peter knocked at the door of the gateway. And a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Verse 14, recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but she ran inside and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. She was so excited. She was so overjoyed, she forgot to let Peter in where he would be safe. She just ran inside to tell the good news and left him by the street. Now, the church does not join Rhoda in her joy here. Look how they respond in verse 15. 
She says, Peter's standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. I like the King James version here. The church told her, thou art mad. You're crazy. There's no way he could have escaped. All those guards and chains. Now remember also, what are the believers doing at this time? They're gathered together and they're praying for Peter. And I don't doubt they're praying in large part that God would rescue Peter. And Rhoda comes in saying, guys, the Lord has done it. He answered your prayers. And they tell her, that's crazy. Now quiet down. So we can keep praying, Lord, please deliver Peter. Please, God. And apparently, they're not expecting God to answer those earnest requests. At least not like this. But Rhoda keeps insisting, no, really, he's outside. I heard his voice, and Rhoda won't drop it. And so then they change their explanation. They say, okay, Rhoda, we'll grant you that you're not just seeing something in your mind. Maybe you saw something that looked like Peter, but what you saw in that case, it's just his angel. Now, there was a widespread Jewish belief in those days, not, not actually a scriptural idea, that uh, supposed each person had an angel assigned to them who could at times appear in the form of that person. So amazingly, the church thought that that far-fetched explanation was more likely to be true than it might be true that God was actually granting their requests in prayer. And as Rhoda argued with these believers about whether or not Peter was outside, Peter keeps standing outside. I think if, if he heard them, he had to throw up his hands and say, just open the door. See for yourselves that I am standing outside before the soldiers find me. And so he kept knocking. Verse 16 says that. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. And then the next verse tells us that Peter had to motion to them with his hand to be silent. We can picture that, can't we? They all cry out in amazement when they see Peter, and, and then he desperately tries to shush them so they won't give away his position. He's still in danger, right? Now, okay, look at the rest of verse 17. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he then described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed. And went to another place. Now he almost certainly left Jerusalem. Got out of town. And we don't know where he went on this occasion. But neither did Herod. Or his soldiers. Peter was just gone. Now there's much for us to learn. From this deliverance. Especially about prayer. Uh, it's no accident that the verses describing the angelic rescue is bracketed by statements about the church praying. Do you notice? The rescue happens in verses 6 through 11. 
Just before that, in verse 5, we read, earnest prayer was made for Peter by the church. And then just after the rescue, in verse 12, we read, many were gathered together and were praying. Clearly, the Lord is the one who accomplished this rescue. The Lord alone, but the Lord chooses to work through means. In this case, it's very clear the means through which God worked to accomplish this deliverance was the prayers of other believers. You're supposed to see in this story, you're supposed to conclude God works in powerful ways, sometimes astonishingly powerful ways through the prayers of His people. The deliverance of Peter should make you eager to pray. Another apostle, the apostle Paul, believed God would deliver him, even out of prison, specifically through the prayers of Christians. Paul wrote from prison in Philippians 1.19, I know that through your prayers... And the help of the Spirit, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul wrote to Philemon, also while he was in prison, and said in Philemon, verse 22, Prepare a guest room for me, because I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. On a different occasion, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and said, On God we have set our hope that He will deliver us again as He delivered us from deadly peril before. You must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing that is granted to us through the prayers of many. God works through our prayers. Acts 12 proves that this hope Paul had was not in vain. God delivers his people from physical and spiritual danger through the prayers of others. Now this passage instructs us also about the manner of prayer in addition to teaching us about the power of it. The church prayed earnestly Verse 5 said, and praying earnestly means praying with intense concern and struggle and effort and fervor and wholeheartedness. This Greek word translated earnest here is only used two other times in the New Testament. Helpfully, one of those other times is also in the context of prayer. The word describes the praying of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was in agony, and so he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Luke 22:44. Matthew 26 says in that garden Jesus was sorrowful and troubled and he fell on his face and he prayed and he did this repeatedly. 3 times he did it. Long enough each time for the disciples to fall asleep while he did. When the church heard Peter was arrested, 
being held for execution, they prayed for him in the same manner Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, earnestly. That's how we should pray for deliverance from danger or from sin. As other scriptures put it, they use the phrase struggling in prayer or agonizing on behalf of others. Colossians 4.12, Romans 15.30. Pray earnestly. Related to that idea, the earnestness of prayer is perseverance in prayer. In Acts 12, the church kept praying. The verb tense in verse 5 indicates the church offered prayer for Peter in an ongoing fashion. They were still found praying even up to that night before Peter would be killed. That's how Peter found them in verse 12. They didn't give up praying. They didn't see that time was running out. They didn't say, oh no, praying is not working. He's still in prison. Let's try something else. They persevered in prayer because there was still time. He wasn't dead yet. Don't give up in prayer. Persevere in it. We could also add, while considering the manner of the church's praying, that they prayed earnestly and perseveringly together. Verse 12 said, many were gathered and they were praying. And it seems to me that, that these were just some of the members who had decided, members of the church, decided to come together to pray. It doesn't seem that the leaders of the church, the other apostles, were there because Peter said in verse 17, y'all go tell James and the other brothers what happened. There's Christians gathering to pray. I want to encourage you to gather with each other to pray. Or when you're gathering with each other already for some other reason or for no reason at all, pray together. The passage shows us also the mystery of prayer, by which I mean the mystery of how and when God answers the prayers of his people. The mystery of prayer is part of the larger mystery of God's providence. I say this passage illustrates the mystery of prayer because the deliverance of an apostle followed the death of another apostle. Did the church just not pray for James? Is that what we're supposed to think? Or are we supposed to think that James died while Peter was rescued because the church didn't pray as earnestly for James or something like that? No way. The text indicates nothing like that, and I think you'd have to have a very mechanical view of prayer and a small, domesticated view of God to draw that conclusion. The most natural way to understand this is to assume the church prayed for James, just like they did for Peter, and one was delivered and one was not. Can your faith and view of God handle that? The book of Hebrews says in chapter 11 that some escaped the edge of the sword while others were killed with the sword. And both happened through faith. Hebrews 11, 34 and 37. When Jesus prayed earnestly in the garden, 
Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Did that happen? No. Jesus showed us, though, the heart we should bring to all our earnest prayers. He added to his request, Nevertheless, Father, not as I will, but your will be done. So prayer is powerful. God works through our prayers, but he is still the sovereign Lord whose will is better than our requests many times. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and none of us can be his counselor. Now, there's one more lesson about prayer I want to draw out for you here before we go forward. The Scripture teaches us to pray in faith, doesn't it? Believing God will grant our requests. But some twist that in in an absolutist kind of way that's very damaging, and they teach that if we just believe God will give us whatever we're asking for enough, then He certainly will, and therefore if God has not given us what we've asked for, then it must be because we haven't asked fully believing that we will receive it. Have you heard someone teach that? In Acts 12, did the church ask in full faith for Peter's deliverance? Clearly not. They didn't expect to receive the answer when they got it. But God answered their prayers anyway. Don't imagine that we control God by our faith. He is the Lord. And we know that God very often in His great grace will answer our prayers better than we believe like he did for the church in Acts 12, who asked unexpectedly, not not that we don't strive following the Scriptures to pray in faith, but still we, we know that our prayers often are mixed with some measure of unbelief. We can still trust that God is kind to give us good gifts in response to our asking still. Let's move forward in the passage now. Verse 18. It moves the focus back to King Herod. So the death of an apostle and the deliverance of an apostle now sets up this next point, which is the death of a king. The death of a king. Verse 18 says, When day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And that's because they knew their lives were in danger. Verse 19, After Herod searched for him, And did not find him, he examined the sentries, the guards, in order that they should be put to death. And then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So in Roman law, guards who allowed prisoners to escape could be made to suffer the punishment the escapee was supposed to face. And so these soldiers did. They were put to death in Peter's place. And here it's treatment of these guys fits the profile of what we found of him earlier in the passage. Fits the family profile. And so does what we read next in verse 20, that he's gotten crossways with others. Verse 20 says, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country 
depended on the king's country, Herod's, for food. Remember what the end of the last chapter said. There's a great famine coming on the land at this time. So the cities of Tyre and Sidon, they realize they need to make peace with Herod because they need food. So they convince Blastus to mediate for them, probably with bribes. Blastus was the king's chamberlain, which means he was a close, trusted, personal servant who oversaw the household affairs of the king. Trusted enough to be that close. And so the people of Tyre and Sidon are given a chance to appear before King Herod. And they show how eager they are to be back in his good graces. Verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Well, Herod could have learned a lesson from the apostle that he just imprisoned. You remember back in Acts 9, when in this same city, Caesarea, a man fell down at Peter's feet and worshipped him, and Peter lifted him up and said, Stand up! I too am a man. Herod didn't do that. He accepted this idolatrous flattery, and that would be the last thing that he ever did. Verse 23, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. They literally flattered him to death. Now you may hear that and think, There's no way that really happened. But actually, the ancient historian Josephus confirms this biblical account. It's really interesting. Josephus reported that Herod Agrippa went to Caesarea, and during a certain festival, he put on a robe made with silver, which during his speech sparkled in the early morning sun, which caused some of his audience to cry out that he was a god and not a mortal man. Josephus wrote, Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. And so a severe pain arose in his belly, worm action, and it began in a most violent manner. He was dead in a matter of days. Amazing correspondence. The scripture tells us this disease that that killed him somehow involves worms, Different people guess what that might have been. I'm I'm not even going to try. The scripture says, though, that there was a supernatural cause to this, that an angel of the Lord caused this plague. And the scripture more fully explains the sin that merited this judgment. He did not give God glory. I want you to notice carefully that Herod's fault was not merely that he received glory for himself. It was the corresponding sin of omission that killed him. He was judged because of what he didn't do. He did not give glory to God. In Herod's case, his idolatry is what we also call pride. Now, pride is usurping for oneself, somehow, 
praise or prerogatives that belong to God. That's what all pride is at some level. And that means all of man's pride is actually blasphemous because it is idolatrous because God deserves all glory. Herod's death proves that pride comes before the fall because God opposes the proud, because God will not give His glory to another. God will humble the proud. That's what He said. And He's not a man that He should lie. Herod seems so mighty, so significant in His royal robe, on His royal throne, giving His royal speech. And he came to a humiliating end. He became food for worms. You cannot sink much lower than that. Worms. This is the folly of human pride. This man seemed to be the one who had the power to kill or keep alive. He seemed to be the one who could give people their daily bread or not. But he wasn't. He was just a man. He was dust, worm food. This picture of Herod makes me think of Psalm 49, which says, Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Man in his pomp yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Nebuchadnezzar, Herod, you must turn from pride in your heart as forcefully as Peter rejected the worship of Cornelius. And the only way to really turn from pride is to pursue its opposite which is giving glory to God. Earnestly, regularly, in your heart, in your prayers, in your words, in everything, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Otherwise, you will be proud, whether you recognize it or not. And pride can be hard to recognize. Now, the way Acts 12 ends shows us that actually the ultimate point of this chapter is not Herod's pride and downfall. The ultimate point is the triumph of the Word, by contrast. That's the final main point of the chapter, the triumph of the Word. And the death of the king serves to highlight this. You'll see that in verse 24, which starts out with the word but, meaning on the other hand... As opposed to what we just read, Herod being eaten by worms. But the word of God, on the other hand, increased and multiplied. Herod made himself an enemy of the word of God, and he lost. And that will always be the outcome. The word, the church of the word, will always outlast proud opponents. 
So Scripture states directly the ultimate truth of Acts chapter 12. In other places, when it says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. All the opponents of the word will die, but the word will keep living. On the other side of another wave of persecution, the word increased and multiplied. This chapter shows the triumph of the word from another angle, too. You see here in Acts 12, it's not just that the word will triumph despite the emergence of opponents. It's also that the word will triumph despite the loss of those who proclaim and defend it. The apostle James was killed, but still the word increased and multiplied. The apostle Peter was imprisoned, but the word increased and multiplied. Like, like Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2, even when ministers of the word are bound with chains like criminals, the word of God is not bound. Then in verse 17, what happened? Peter departed. He went to another place. And by and large, this is Peter's exit from the book of Acts. He shows up again briefly at a big church meeting in Acts 15 that we'll see. But that's it. He is gone concerning the mission of the church and the storyline of Acts. After God has used him so much in the first 12 chapters. The main person God has used in the spread of the gospel. But from this point on, it will not be so anymore. Will the word of God triumph even when the foremost teachers and preachers and evangelists leave? Yes. The, the book of Acts isn't over. And in fact, it continues... A little bit in chapter 12. The last verse points us to next man up. Who will replace Peter as the main man God uses in the advance of the gospel. Verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. Bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So this verse in chapter 12 brings us full circle and ties it up with the very end of chapter 11. Despite another wave of persecution that came, despite the death of James, despite the departure of the man, Peter, the mission just continues on, as usual. Saul and Barnabas return to Antioch, completing their service, ready for more service, which they begin in the next chapter. The word increases still. Listen, what does the Bible say? All flesh is like grass. The great opponents of the church and the great leaders of the church all wither and pass away, but the word remains. So kings come and go, kingdoms come and go. Persecutors come and go, preachers come and go, missionaries come and go, 
but the word abides. And the word will continue to triumph as God continues to answer his people's prayers and continues to bring down the proud. Now, all of you, before we close, need to consider these truths soberly, that your life is like grass, like Herod, like James. And the glory that you might be living for and hoping for, maybe you young people, the the grand thoughts you have about what you want to be when you grow up, if it's not for the Lord... It's glory that's just withering grass. I want to implore you to live your life for something that will last, which is the glory of God and the Word of God. If you're not following the Lord as a Christian, then you are necessarily, right now, living in pride. As an opponent of God's Word, as a rival to God's glory, but you don't have to stay in that place. You don't have to sit in the seat of Herod Agrippa because God sent his son. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, to die for the pride of men and all of the sins of his people. And then he rose from the dead three days later, showing that our eternal penalty that we deserve was fully paid, and also proving that he is the eternal Lord of glory. So turn from your pride, trust in Christ's saving work, and give God glory, and keep doing that. And the Lord will bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom by his grace. God, thank you that even though kings and kingdoms rise and fall, that we know your kingdom and your king, Jesus Christ, and his throne will never be removed. God, I pray that you would show us where we are proud, help us to humble ourselves like the Lord Jesus for his glory. I pray that you would help us not to get entangled in civilian pursuits, but to live for the word of God, which lives and abides forever. God, I pray especially for the young people in here. God, I pray that you would give all of them hopes and dreams to live for your glory, to live for your word. God, I pray that you would help us to stand firm in the face of all kinds of opposition, small and great. We pray all of this with thanksgiving to you for this word you've spoken to us. In the name of Jesus, amen.